Thanks to LinkedIn for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. Find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, January 7th. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and joining me in the studio via Skype, first show of the new year, my guy, certified financial planner, Matt Frankel. Matt, how's everything going? Oh, it's just great. A good weekend of football behind us. I was going to say, your Eagles shirt doesn't leave much to the imagination <laughs> as to who you were pulling for yesterday, huh? So, yeah, yeah. South Jersey, born and raised. We're pretty much Philly. <laughs> Well, that was a nail-biter, man, a nail-biter for sure, but they're uh, moving on, so that's good to see. Uh, today, on today's show, we're going to dive into Twitter to answer a couple of listener questions regarding portfolio allocation, uh, some book recommendations. As always, we'll have one to watch. Uh, but first, Matt, there's some news that came out late last week that uh, seemed relatively relevant to our universe here, and it looks like Square has a new CFO in town, uh, Miss Amrita Ahuja, who is currently the CE, uh, the CFO of video game developer Blizzard Entertainment, and yes, that's Blizzard of Activision Blizzard, uh, is going to be coming in and taking over the reins there at Square. And I tell you, after reading a little bit about her work history and a nice little uh, Twitter thread she had out there regarding her family and and how they came to this uh, came to the country, I, I feel I feel really good about this hire. What what do you think? I do. It seems like they got the right person for the job. Like I, like I've said before, um, Sarah Fryer left some pretty big shoes to fill over there. But having said that, um, I like what Jack Dorsey had to say about how entrepreneurial she is. Um, and just kind of how she's going to kind of focus just on the CFO role. Sarah Fryer was kind of, you know, a dual focus. She did a lot of the the CFO role and then did a lot of the, you know, the PR work for the company, essentially. Um, all we pretty much everything we know about the company's future plans to get into banking and to be kind of the one stop personal finance shop. We know from Sarah Fryer's, you know, speeches and discussions and things like that. So he says that she's going to be a little more kind of focused on the job, which I think is a very good thing from an investor's perspective. Um, it definitely seems kind of a lot of parallels between her old job and the new job. So I think it's a good hire. I think the stock does not deserve to be down 30% from when Sarah Fryer announced that she was leaving. Um, and even though Square's kind of popped in the last few days, I don't think the pop was a direct result of the announcement. I think it was more because, you know, the market was going crazy higher on Friday. Yep. But I, I I think they have the right person for the job. Only time will tell. But this is definitely a, a step in the right direction. Investors hate uncertainty, and this <laughs> removed a big chunk of that uncertainty. So I'll leave it with that. Yeah, I mean that's that's a good point there. We weren't really sure how long this was going to go on, but but given that Jack Dorsey at at both Twitter and Square, he's he's really uh, you know he said his primary role as as CEO of both companies is to make sure that he's getting uh, the appropriate talent. Uh, in the appropriate positions, and so that's encouraging. I mean, you look at Miss Ahuja's uh, work history. She she had stints at Fox Networks Group, at the Walt Disney Company, and Morgan Stanley. Um, after receiving degrees from Duke and Harvard Business School, so yeah, I'd say she seems pretty qualified. Yeah, this definitely seems like a a good person to have at the top of their list, and I can easily see why Jack Dorsey went ahead and pulled the trigger and brought her on the team. And you know it's probably a little bit of a different stage for Square at this point in its life, where for for 
a while, I think, you know, Sarah Fryer really needed to be out there front and center in, in creating that public image and helping to nurture that public image of Square so that consumers and merchants and restaurateurs all understood more about what Square does and the value proposition that they're offering to, to all of their different customers. And so, perhaps today, there is more public awareness, more understanding as to what the company does to where uh, Ms. Ahuja can go in there and really focus more on the numbers and making sure that the company is is a, allocating its investments appropriately. Uh, it kind of reminds me maybe of of perhaps when Ruth Porat took over at, at Alphabet. Um, you know, she was able to go in there and focus a little bit more on the numbers and make sure that they were running uh, a, a smartly led operation there. And maybe that'll be something that Ms. Hooja has uh, the chance to do here as well. So I don't know how uh, public a face she will be, but I, I would recommend anyone who wants to learn a little bit more about her. You can go to Twitter and actually see the thread that she tweeted out there shortly after this news was was announced. And she just gives a little bit more about her story, her parents' story, uh, and as you mentioned, the entrepreneurial spirit of of her and her parents. And I think that gives a, a little bit uh, more understanding as to why we like that hire. And, and certainly, it seems like she would be uh, somewhat empathetic to, to not only the company, but its customers as well. And, and I think that can only be a good thing. Yeah, definitely. And I like your point about how they don't really need that public face as much anymore. I, when I first started writing about Square and first invested in it a few years ago, I used to have to use the first hundred or so words of every article about them explaining <laughs> who the company was. Yep. So, you know, the ones that make the little card readers you see sticking out of people's iPhones. Now that's no longer necessary. So, you don't really need someone to tell you where the company's going constantly and, you know, who they are and what they do. So, I like that they're kind of consolidating this role down to a more traditional CFO role. That's All a right. big positive in my mind. Well, good news for your one to watch for 2019, Matt. We'll, we'll keep following it and wish them the best of luck. I'm sure we'll learn a little bit more when earnings season comes around. Okay, let's tap into Twitter here because we had some really good questions uh, over the break uh, on Twitter. And a couple that really caught our eye, and, and I think it was because they – we could have discussions about probably each one of these tweets for for the entire podcast, and we we won't, but we'll try to try to tighten it up as much, as well as we can. But but number one here, we had a tweet from at uh, Leon the Fixer, and at uh, Leon the Fixer asks, were there any book recommendations that podcast guests gave in their 2018 wraps? I seem to remember them in past years, but didn't seem to be any this year. Uh, but he is wondering, uh, you know, do we have any any book recommendations that we read through the year, um, or or even earlier, something that we can throw out there for listeners? And folks, you're in luck because Matt and I both read a lot, and we've got some pretty good recommendations we think coming at you. So, Matt, I'm going to let you kick it off. What 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 kind of recommendations do you have for our readers out there? Um, one personal finance book I actually just read, it was called Your Money or Your Life. I don't know if you're familiar with this one. Mm-mm. This is, in my opinion, my wife and I just both finished reading this. In my opinion, it's the best book on personal finance I've ever read. Oh, really? Wow. Um, in terms of just kind of putting it into perspective, like saving money and kind of how to get yourself in the mindset of kind of a saver as opposed to a spender. So anyone looking to, you know, if your New Year's resolution was to be smarter about how you're spending money and stuff like that, I'd definitely recommend giving that one a read. Uh, beyond that, I love to recommend some of the classics. I know this was on my last book list I did on this podcast a few years ago, but um, I got to reiterate uh, Peter Lynch's books, especially One Up on Wall Street. Yeah. This is, uh, we were just talking about Square. This is the one that, you know, got me to invest in Square 
and to find opportunities like that. The whole book is about using your advantages as a small investor over the over you know the big players, hedge funds, institutional investors, etc., by just kind of using what you already know. And the whole reason I invested with Square is because I was you know walking through farmers markets in my area, just kind of a, a plumber came to my house with a Square card reader out of his pocket. I just kind of like observed how this was becoming more and more of a trend before I even knew what the company did or who <laughs> who it was. And that's kind of how I got them on my radar as an investment and wound up – that's been my best performing stock I've ever invested in. I bought it a few years ago at $11 and still own it today. And even after the recent correction, it's been you know a big, big winner. Um, so that's called One Up on Wall Street. I actually have a copy of it right here. Yep. Um, and another of Peter Lynch's books that I like that is kind of a lesser known one, it's called Learn to Earn. Oh, yeah. I do remember that. Um, it's a really – Good overview of the basics of investing. Um, you know, if you've ever tried to read like a college finance textbook and find it's just kind of way over the head, <laughs> this is a way that kind of just breaks everything down into real simple English in a really easy to understand way. Um, beyond that, the two Benjamin Graham books are always great ones to read if you haven't read them already. Uh, the Intelligent Investor and Security Analysis is the if um, the way I would kind of kind of phrase it is the intelligent investor is like going to college for investing and securities analysis is grad school. Yeah. It's kind of the the step beyond it kind of really teaches you how to dive into the numbers and things like that. But the intelligent investor, um, they actually re- they updated it a few years ago and probably the best book on value investing ever written. And it's it's Warren Buffett's favorite book. So if that tells you anything. Yeah, I enjoyed reading that one. I think it just a lot of the principles that um, that he wrote about back then, uh, Ben Graham, they, they still hold today. I mean, obviously, it's a little bit of a different world today. The way technology has changed, uh, sort of the landscape out there. But but I and I never read securities analysis. Um, I that that was I don't know. I felt like it was a bit more into the weeds than I was looking for at the time. Um, but I have heard from from a number of people that they benefit a lot from reading it, so maybe I should get in there and give it a read as well. So, you know, I'm going to go in a little bit of a different direction because I think you gave a lot of great investing, sort of big picture investing books that I, I, we've read most of them. I love Peter Lynch's take on things and can't recommend those enough. And I think if you read One Up on Wall Street, I mean, read Beating the Street as well. Um, and and you've got learn to earn. Those are three great Peter Lynch books, and those those lessons really are timeless as well. I think you know the best book that I read in 2018, and I'm going to thank one of our members and listeners, Greg Gages, out there because he's the one who left me this book last time he was in town for a for one of our events. It's called The Healing of America: A Global Quest for Better, Cheaper, and Fairer Healthcare, uh, written by T. R. Reed. And this is just a a really it's an easy read. But it is so informative, and it gives you a look at the healthcare systems around the world. And 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 he he essentially goes in, into all of these different places to try to find out the the strengths and the weaknesses of everybody's system. And and it, they all have their strengths and weaknesses. There is no one answer for for you know particularly our problems here domestically. But I think it goes to show that it's not a simple solution. It's going to be difficult when you've got a lot of political uh, sway going one way versus the other. Um, But really, for me, it all boils back down to what is the goal 
of your healthcare system? Are you trying to make sure everybody gets healthcare, or are you trying to achieve some other goal? And with most countries, the goal was very clearly, let's make sure everybody has healthcare. After reading the book, I, I don't feel as comfortable saying that our goal here is to give everybody health care. I think it's to give everybody health care with some conditions, and, and that, that makes it a bit more difficult. But I think that's a great book to give you a better idea of how health care is viewed around the world. And uh, you recognize that it's not a one-size-fits-all. It's certainly a tough problem to solve. But I found myself highlighting passage after passage in that book. Uh, because I just I, I keep on going back and looking at it again. Just a, a great read. Um, another one I read this a couple of years back, a few years back, I guess. The Citizen Coke by Bar, uh, Barto Elmore, and this is just a neat one because it talks about the the history of Coca Cola from the very beginning and how the business was built, how it changed, the parts of the value chain that made up the business. I mean, this really this really goes into uh, into some some neat areas of the business that a lot of people wouldn't. Maybe think of, but essentially every chapter is devoted to one facet of the business, whether it's the water or whether it's the bottling or whether it's the the actual soda mix. And in, in in talking about the the economies that benefit uh, from one versus the other, so that was a fun read. Um, and then uh, American icon Alan Mulally and the fight to save Ford Motor Company. This one was written by Bryce Hoffman, and it was this is this was published a number of years back, and it was it was as uh, you know the financial crisis hit, we saw all these automakers. Uh, really, really uh, struggling hard, and Ford was the one that was able to uh, stand stand above the rest because uh, they they one one of the reasons they brought in Alan Mulally, who who really he had a, he had a strategy in mind, he had a vision in place, and he and he he led that company uh, from from a very difficult position into a position of success. And Ford has done very well since then. Obviously, the auto industry is a difficult one to begin with, uh, but I think. It is a really neat story about Alan Mulally, the guy, about what he did with Ford, about the other players in the space and the, and the areas where they fell short. Um, and you know, I, I had the great fortune of actually interviewing Alan Mulally one year at the North American International Auto Show in Detroit. Nice as could be, it was a big thrill for me. One of the highlights of my life as an analyst. I mean, just getting to meet and talk with him was really cool. And reading this book, uh, it resonated even more. Uh, so those are three that I think, uh, if you're looking for some good investing stories, those those are great ones there. Uh, so hopefully, that will give Leon the Fixer and the rest of our listeners a fun list from which to choose here in 2019. Before we go on, I want to thank LinkedIn for supporting this episode of Industry Focus. You know, making that perfect hire can help set your team up for success in the new year. But where do you find that person? That's why when it comes to posting your job, you go where you have access to an engaged community that people visit every day. I'm talking about LinkedIn. Most LinkedIn members aren't checking job boards regularly, but 9 out of 10 LinkedIn members are open to and interested in new opportunities like yours. With most of the U.S. workforce on LinkedIn, posting on LinkedIn is the best way to get your job opportunity in front of more of the right people. It's no wonder that a new hire is made every 8 seconds using LinkedIn. Make sure to find the right people for your business this year at linkedin.com slash fool and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash fool. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, Matt, let's go back to Twitter for one more question this week. And this was one we got over the break from at Chris M underscore Jones. 
And Chris asks, would love to have your take on portfolio allocation. I received my annual portfolio review from my broker and went through it. I had never really thought a lot about sector allocation, but wanted to get your take on the importance or lack thereof on sector allocation. My portfolio is 52% tech, in quotation marks. I'm a computer programmer scientist, so I try to invest in what I know best. And I'm also overweight in consumer cyclical and basic materials and underweight all other sectors based on comparing to the S&P 500. Thanks in advance for your insight. Uh, Okay, so Matt, this is a big, wide-ranging topic, portfolio diversification and allocation. And I thought it'd be an Neat opportunity, at least for us to talk a little bit about it. And give uh, Chris maybe some ideas. Uh, what do you think there when Chris uh, when Chris tells us about his situation? Well, I don't think he's doing anything wrong, really. Um, to tell you, like I just mentioned, Peter Lynch's book One Up on Wall Street, and the whole kind of underlying theme of it is invest in what you know. And just kind of right before that we recorded, I tallied up some of the numbers from my own portfolio, and this actually kind of surprised me. It was this high. But my portfolio is 56% split between real estate investment trusts or REITs, insurance companies, and banks. The three things I know the best make up well over half of my portfolio. And tech is kind of right up there, too. I'm overweight tech and Mm -hmm. very underweight things like healthcare, which I know nothing about. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Underweight in a lot of industrials, which I don't understand that well. Um, So I wouldn't know enough to make good investments in those areas, if anything, I would probably buy an index fund that invested in yep. healthcare stocks, yep. um, just because I don't really know. Um, th- having said that, there's a limit to the invest in what you know thing. Like I said, I, there's a reason I don't have 100% of my, my portfolio in REITs, although I feel that that's probably the best one of the best long-term opportunities right now. Um, you still want to kind of find the best of the best in the other sectors. If you don't know a sector that well, it's a really good kind of strategy to either A, buy an index fund, like I just mentioned, or B, find the best of the best players in that industry with, you know, big competitive advantages, you know, that aren't going anywhere. Um, Just to kind of give you an example, I'm not a tech wizard or anything like that, but I know enough that Apple's a great company, which is why Apple is very overweight in my portfolio right now. Um, So that's kind of my advice. If you do feel you need a little bit of diversification into sectors you're not too familiar with, um, if you need to get into banking, for example, either the XLF, that um, index fund I mentioned a few few weeks ago, or one of the big banks, like a JP Morgan Chase, you really can't go wrong with one of those. Um, so again, invest in what you know. I wouldn't really dive into like any smaller mid-cap stocks in an area that you don't really know very well. But as far as the best players in the sector or index funds, that's kind of the way to go, in my opinion, if you're not too familiar with the sector and need a little more Diversification in your portfolio. Yeah, and and you know I, I was reading this question, and it the the first thing that came to mind was uh, Warren Buffett's quote regarding diversification. Right, he says diversification is protection against ignorance. It makes little sense if you know what you're doing. I I think there's there's something to this, and, and I guess the the first thing that i think is really don't don't diversify just for the sake of saying that you're diversified if you're investing in something that you have no idea about that's not diversification that's just bad investing so if you don't if you don't know anything about 
you know, materials or cyclicals or whatever it may be, energy, healthcare, don't just assume that you have to have that exposure because it makes for good uh, diversification. Uh, and to your point, having a fund probably makes more sense in those areas where you're not uh, so familiar with the actual space. And I, I also wanted to go back to one thing in 2018. Uh, remember that the there was the the these uh, S and P communications sector. Uh, the commu- the communication services sector was launched. Essentially, the S and P made this new sector because I think everybody at this point probably feels like they're overexposed to tech, and that is because most of the things in our lives all revolve around tech in one way or another. But the S and P put together this S and P communications services sector, um, and and this sector ultimately included. Companies from three different industry groups in telecommunications and uh, technology, and then also consumer discretionary. But the basic idea was that we are in such a tech-driven world today that a lot of these companies are viewed a little bit differently today than they were perhaps 10 or 20 years ago. So, main point here is if you feel like you're overweight tech, well, that makes a little sense because we are in such a tech-driven world today. Um, So, I don't think that's really ultimately a bad thing. Um, And then, just to take a little bit of a bigger picture view, uh, less about um, markets or sectors and, and focusing more on small cap, large cap, mid cap, things like that. You know, I went to our premium pass uh, offering here at the, at the Fool to look through some of the portfolio uh, tools that they have, and, and they have some uh, recommended uh, allocations there for folks who are either in, in that grow your wealth uh, phase or defend your wealth phase. And just to give uh, some numbers there, in the grow your wealth phase, uh, the 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 recommendations in premium pass, and these are of course. Workable. I mean, nothing setting in stone, but they're saying uh, if you're looking to grow your wealth, have have 25% of your portfolio in large caps, 15% in mid caps, 15% in small caps, 30% in international, which I found was interesting, uh, 10% in alternatives, which could be real estate or REITs, like you were talking about the earlier, Matt, and 5% in bonds. Uh, but generally speaking, the idea is there with that grow your wealth portfolio, you can take on a little bit more risk at that point, and that's why you have such heavy exposure to stocks. If you go to the defend your wealth portfolio there, they have large cap at 25%, mid cap at 10%, small cap at 10%, international now at 10%, alternative at 5 and bonds at 40%. And I think those are things just to keep in mind, because every investor is a little bit different in, in their goals in their stage of life. And so, if you're older and you need to focus on protecting your wealth, you need to allocate a little bit differently and make sure that you are taking some of that risk off the table. Uh, but again, a topic we could probably we could probably go on for hours just talking about diversification and allocation. Uh, but, Chris, we hope that helps out uh, uh, with, your, with your questions there. And, um, Folks, remember, you can always reach out to us via email at industryfocusatfool.com. Make sure to follow us on Twitter at MFIndustryFocus. And if you have questions, fire away. We'd love to bring them onto the show and answer them for you. But, uh, Matt, let's clear this uh, week out here and wrap it all up with one to watch. And um, I'm going to let you go ahead and start here. What's your one to watch for the coming week? Yeah, I'm going to name one of my REITs. Um, I don't personally own this one yet, but it's jumped to the top of my watch list. Um, over the past couple months, hotel stocks have really gotten beaten down. Um, ho- unlike a lot of you know commercial properties, hotels are a very recession-prone industry. And since kind of the whole reason that the markets 
done what it has is because of fears of a global slowdown or recession. So hotel stocks have been completely annihilated. I want to recommend one called Apple Hospitality REIT, ticker symbol APLE, and they invest in kind of mid-market hotels. Um, think uh, Homewood Suites, um, Courtyard by Marriott are some of their big brands in their portfolio. And these tend to do really well, not really well, but they tend to hold up better than most during recessions. They get a lot of the business crowd, which is less sensitive to economic slowdowns. And they also tend to get kind of a trickle-down effect when people who would normally go to a higher-end hotel need to cut back, they go to these ones. Um, Right now, just because of how badly these have been beaten down, this one is yielding 8.2%. And it's well covered by the company's earnings, even if it takes a hit, that dividend's well covered. So that's one that I am watching right now. And even if it takes a little while for these to recover until we see that, until, you know, the next recession comes and goes or whatever happens, um, you're getting paid really, really well to wait. So that's one that's on the top of my list. And now that I've, I realize I have 56% of my portfolio in REITs and financials, (laughs) I may have to rethink it, but that's definitely one that I'm really tempted to buy right now. Uh, that's good. I, I tell you, I'm uh, I'm with you. I'm going to go a little bit real estate uh, oriented as well, and a little bit different though. And it's it's this is partly a tech play for sure. Um, is Ellie May ticker is E L L I, and Ellie May is the mortgage software provider uh, we've spoken about before. This is you know this is a really good business that has caught any really tricky time right now, and the sentiment for buying homes. Is is low. Uh, some complaints about inventory being somewhat tight, prices being a little bit tough, and interest rates starting to to move upward. Uh, and really, Ellie May is is they count on that volume either in the form of purchases or refinances. But they are pinned very much to the housing market here, and and it's the stock has taken a big hit here over the past year because of you know management ratcheting guidance back a little bit based on the housing market and uh, some questionable uh, economic conditions for home buying in the coming quarters. I I think that this is the this is the point in time though where you need to be looking at a business like this. It's a good business. It's profitable. It's got strong cash flow, competent management, um, and it's trading at around 22 times uh, free cash flow today, which uh, historically is a pretty good deal uh, for what we consider a darn good business. And and I will say I I do own shares of LMA myself and remain a happy shareholder. I think this is a good opportunity to be looking at this stock if you don't own it, uh, because the housing market will. Come back, you know it. It ebbs and flows, and uh, hey, you know if we have a recession that hits here in the next year or two, too. I mean, you never know. If if we do see something like that, this business could certainly get cheaper. Uh, but but a good business and and one I think uh, listeners should keep on their radar. Matt, that's about all we have for today. But it's always great talking with you. Congratulations on your Eagles yesterday. I know you're looking forward to the game this weekend. I am. I'll actually be up by HQ for that one. All right, man. We'll look forward to seeing you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. This show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. 